Hello folks, welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward. Now I just wanted to let you know that despite what you might believe, you are a high performance human. And the concept of high performance is actually a measurable state where an individual, as you, consistently performs at a higher level of operational success compared with most of their peers within that same environment at a particular time. So it's not just sport, it might be work, it might be family life, it might be relationships. And that high performance is not absolute, it's relative. So if you're an endurance athlete and you train or compete regularly, please don't just compare yourself against those other athletes. Instead, think about all the folks of your age, your friends, people at work, or people that you just bump into in the supermarket. Compared to them, you're operating at a very high level. Now, I appreciate that despite this, you might still want to improve. And if that's the case, then I'd love to be able to help you out. Could be sleep, nutrition, fitness, your personal relationships or work habits, and a lot more. And I've currently got availability to take on a couple of clients. And my wife, Beth, who is a certified life coach, has some availability as well. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered. And you can find contact details in the show notes. All right, then. Now for today's show. So this is something I've been trying to line up for a couple of years now without success for one reason or another. But finally, finally, I managed to pin her down. And so on the show today, we've got Dr. Stacey Sims, who is probably familiar to many of you, especially if you're female, because she's written two very popular books just for you. One is called Raw, which she published back in 2016 and was recently updated and revised. And her second book, Next Level, is about kicking ass and crushing goals through the menopause, which was published in 2022. And as a result of these two books and her public speaking, Stacey's become associated with such phrases as women are not small men and lift heavy shit. Anyway, thank you to those of you who sent questions in today for Stacey. Much of our conversation is based around those and I've broken it down into four key areas which you were asking about. Exercise and specifically areas such as zone two and hit, nutrition, strength training and the menopause. And Dr. Sims has a lot of great ideas for you, so please listen carefully and do take notes. So let's crack on with Dr. Sims. Well, a very, very grateful welcome to the show to Dr. Stacey Sims, all the way from New Zealand. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Simon. I'm excited to chat now that we've established commonalities amongst our colleagues and friends. It's kind of fun. Yeah, j- just for those people who are wondering what we're talking about, Stacy wrote to me yesterday and said, oh, I've got a surprise guest for you who's staying with us. And it was uh, Kerry McGauley, who was a previous guest on the podcast, which was a nice surprise to say hello to her. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, well, Stacey, I've, uh, I've been a long time follower of yours. I think we met at a Training Peaks conference in Boulder um, some years ago. Yes, that's right. I, c- I can't oh, remember. Yeah. Was, well, I can't remember whether that was 2017 or 2019, um, but you were definitely talking about your book, Raw. Must have been 19. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Just yeah. about just about the last thing before the pandemic, right? <laughs> yes, before the world changed. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I feel like I've, I've been asked and been chasing you to get you on the show for uh, forever. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to finally have you here. So um, I've read your books as I'm sure lots of our listeners have, but there's probably lots who haven't read your books. And so I thought before we 
get into a, a deeper dive into some of the topics you talk about. Um, let's introduce people to Dr. Stacey Sims and talk about how you got to where you are now. So yeah. how, how about we start off at school? Were you were you an athletic child growing up? Um, I started as a ballerina. And then when I was about 13, and my instructor was like, you need to choose between running and ballet. And I uh, kind of recommend running. And I was like, okay, let's go getting too tall and gangly. I got that. That's fine. And so, yeah, ran cross country through high school. Um, got on to the rowing team with a crew team at university. Uh, and then after that, well, I should say probably during the time that I was rowing, um, I had a group of good friends and we bought ourselves a business bus. So we ended up running 20 marathons before we just do random stuff as well as daily coaching. And that kind of carried over afterwards. I got involved in triathlon and going Ironman and going Corona. Then Xterra, I raced bikes professionally. Um, so there's been a whole gamut of the endurance stuff. But at the same time, having a very curious mind and wanting to know answers and having that accessibility, being in the academic world to ask those questions, go into lab, do tests and find out that, yeah, really, we've never done this before. We don't know anything on the room. We just have this generalized data from them. And when you are a competitive athlete, that just doesn't go away. When you're trying to put your best into things and find out that the methods that you are using that really optimized for what you work as So that was kind of like the pointy part of the, the why I do things because I didn't feel it really right that men didn't have to do the same things as men mm. and they weren't finding the same response. And there's so many incidents of overtraining or dropout with so many different things. And people are like, oh, well, you know, that's just what happens. So, so in, in your book, Roar, I think part of the foreword is um, uh, f- felt like a, a fairly significant moment after an Ironman in Hawaii where you were struggling, you'd been struggling with hydration. And I think while you were in the, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, you were in the med tent and then you were talking to some other female racers and they were sort of uh, ex- expressing the same thoughts as you. And that sort of got you into overdrive. Is that right? Yeah. Um so I qualified for Kona here in New Zealand when I was here the first time. Um, because I went going back and forth with Kona Sunrise. And I did all of the things that we were supposed to do with feet upon the ocean and understanding on the course. And it was at the same time that I was trying to figure out foods to travel. I knew I wanted to do something in environmental physiology. So feet or altitude or something like that. And when I was on the Kona course, I experienced hypoenthalpia and, and got really bloated, dizzy, disoriented, and then uh, had a gastrolite tablet, which is a nutrient tablet, and then had a few other results. And then I was very conscious that, okay, I need to take on more sodium and black and stuff now. And I didn't understand why, because I've never had that issue. And I'm someone who loves to be, do well with you. And this is a right up. I can't say so I'm in the time I'm talking to one other Hindu who's in the two. And we figured out that we were both in the five elements of the Roman Shasin. And we were both about four or five years out in the third stone. And so that kind of stuck with me. Because then when I started talking to the other women that were from New Zealand, and they all done the same stuff and they all came over around the same time. 
Maybe not in a show, but maybe in the real one, and there is two other on the open perspective there. So as a woman, I'll do something new. So understanding that, you know, my brain is working on like the fact that we know the temperature goes up and that kind of stuff, but then most of the stuff work. So that was kind of like the benchmark where I go back and start my PhD looking at hyperhydration, sex differences, and feet, and trying to understand what's happening with our plasma volume and ability to become regular between the menstrual cycle, between the open perspective cell, Okay, so um, so you had that experience at Ironman Hawaii, and you decided that that, that was a good place to start with all your research. Uh, I mean, up until that point, I know I remember when I was listening to that presentation you gave at, at the Endurance Coaching Summit, you were very, very vocal about this, women are not small men. And I think that's stuck in the minds of a lot of people. So that's a great catchphrase, and the shrink it, not you know, shrink it and pink it thing that the sort of the, you know, the manufacturer's approach to females would, well, let's just cut it in half and put some colourful wrapping on and that'll do. Um, and it seemed like that there was that there was also like a something that stuck with you personally about the way females are treated in 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 a world. Um, is that was that a driver as well in the in the work that you started to do? Yeah, I've been person and growing such a several models, but I'm really to women who were able to do whatever really they wanted and had a voice. My parents encouraged me and my sister to do the same. So when I got out to like university and were doing labs and someone started my results because they are anomalies and say, we don't study women or we don't study women because we don't know enough about men. Mm -hmm. And then getting into, uh, um, you know, more applied situation, work situations with other male colleagues and they're saying well you're not a real scientist because women and you don't have an md and so mm -hmm. i've just had a lot of pushback of being a woman trying to push forward and whether or not men really for an internal joke for myself and my uh, mentor at stanford where i had to teach after lunch to undergrad and they'd be in there and they're kind of like really tired and sleepy and our topics were all so I'd always open up. Well, women are not small men. And the first time I did that, and I'd say, women are not small men. And today we are talking about. Or next time I'd open it with whatever it is. And then that, you know, we data men and it's been generalized to women, but we can see that it's not because women's physiology is different. And, you know, women aren't just small men became a catchphrase and in that cohort of students they're all like yeah women are not small men understanding that it's not a feminist call to action but really it's awareness to say hey yeah we need to see where the data comes from and is it really applicable to women mm -hmm. and if not then what do we need to do to make it applicable maybe we have to redo the studies maybe we have to look a little bit more mechanistically and maybe, just maybe, we have to actually design a study that incorporates a women's physiology and make that the norm. Yeah, I, yeah. I've, yeah. I, I've been on the receiving end a little bit. I don't do any research, but I've been involved in some um, heart research in, in the Yorkshire area for middle-aged men um, mm -hmm. who, who do a lot of exercise. And so with my sort of extensive range of contacts in the triathlon world, I've sort of put some social media posts out saying if anybody would like to be part of this. And I've had a half a dozen females said yes i would and i'm i'm then i'm going to go back and say the study's not designed for females and then i get this 
sort of barrage of emails, you know, well, this is unfair, you know, it should be. And I agree, it should be. Um, and that whole thing that you've just mentioned there, well, it's not really designed for females and there's too many confounded factors. And so, you know, it just costs too much money and uh, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that I'm sure you've heard many times. And just excuses. And I, like Julie and I had this conversation, we really frustrated the it's too expensive and complex because when we look at there's a, a certain amount of money and you need to get some research done. So you need to design a study to stay within budget and get the outcome. So if we think back in time where who designed the original ideas of science, and of course it was men. Who mm-hmm. sits in a room and designs studies? It's men. Had it been slept and it had been women, we wouldn't be having this conversation and why women are not small men. We'd be saying, well, men need to be included in studies. So it's just thinking outside of what is a, a norm or has been a tradition. So I get frustrated for those women who are excluded. But then I also get frustrated for men, things like um, different, like breast cancer research is all done on women. But men have a high incidence of breast cancer too, but mm-hmm. they've been excluded from the studies. And this is one of the incidences where the data is generalized to them. Mm-hmm. And that's not appropriate either. So it all brings it back down to, we have to understand what we're going after the population and design the studies appropriately and answer the question for that population. In the yeah, we know there's a higher incidence of uh, heart disease and cardiovascular risk factors than men. And the outcomes are different for women. But first, figure out what these mechanisms are for the population of the greatest at risk. Mm-hmm. And then we can look, okay, let's design a, a study that's going to look at the differences. And so we can write, I feel rather than want to be included. Yeah, I. I listened to a really good podcast that was done by two of the VPs at Whoop. I think you've been on the Whoop podcast, right? And um, the two ladies, I can't remember the names, um, but they were talking about this, uh, the research and research imbalances here. And they talked about, um, I think Ambien was the drug and how all of the protocols for the dosage for Ambien were based on males. And so effectively, for most females who are of a smaller stature, that dosage would actually be like, almost like an overdose. Um, but nobody's ever questioned that. They just go, oh, yeah, two, two tablets every eight hours, blah, blah, blah. Back in you go with a glass of water. Now, that's, that, that, that's quite unsafe, really, when you consider it from that argument. Yeah, I look at it as my husband and I both had hip surgery. Can we get home with the, with the exact same dosage and the exact same medication? I'm a 58 kilo and he's a 80 kilo dude. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> he's not, he's either not getting enough or I'm getting too much. But no yeah. one questions. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, I'm sure you've read the book. Is it Caroline Criado Perez, Invisible Women? Um, yeah. r- really goes into much more detail on this subject, doesn't it? And, um, uh, fascinated by that book because it brings up so many imbalances that we've never considered um yeah yeah and it looks at a lot of the socio-cultural nuances and those are often not included in sport and and it's so important to understand where people come from what their ideas how we got to this certain situation so we can unpack and make it better for everyone so yeah that's fantastic yeah and i'm going to 
along with all of your books, Stacey, I'm going to make a reference to that in, in the show notes today so that folks can go and um, check that out as well. Now, um, I know we've limited on time, and uh, so I'm going to crack on with some of the discussion points um, that have been driven mostly by questions from our female listeners. I put a call out on social media asking them if they'd got any questions. Um, the responses were you know, large and unexpected, but it just shows that the reach that you've got and the interest that people have in what you're talking about, which is which is great. And it, it felt like there were four key areas um, that the questions were based around. One's exercise, and that's um, divided into um, endurance type, you know, cardiovascular exercise and strength training. Um, there's another one on nutrition. Uh, there was a lot of questions on menopause, and pleasingly. There were some questions from our male listeners saying, well, um, I'm a coach. You know, what does what advice does Stacey have from me in um, communicating and working with female athletes, which I thought was very open minded and um, really probably I can see from your face that you're pleased with that. I was, too. So uh, um, I'd like to come on to that one at the end. So let's talk about exercise first. Um, I wrote an article recently about zone two training and I got a bit of pushback from some female listeners who said, ah, but zone two training's great for men, but what about female, Simon? Stacey Sims says this. So I went and found a blog post that you'd written uh, probably um, just before Christmas about this exact topic and the reasons why females need to be careful about this generalized prescription for zone two. So, first can you can you just dive in a little bit deeper into that from your perspective and then i'd like to sort of um widen out to the differences between females who are keeping fit for health and those who are training for endurance exercise which where i guess there might be a a, a bit of a subtlety in the approach there we know all this stuff is going to do we want to increase our mitochondrial density our mitochondrial respiratory rate and our health we want to be able to increase our ability to clear lactic acid, to want to do zone two, to upregulate the MCT transporters that actually help pull lactate in and use free fatty acids. We hear all of this stuff, but when we look at sex differences, women have more oxidative fibers than men. We have more uh, ability and capability of using and pulling in free fatty acids. We have more mitochondrial density. We have that allow free fatty acids to come in and be used. Um, and then we have estrogen that also enhances free fatty acid utilization. We have differences in um, the way the body receives exercise, exercise metabolism, where when women start to drop to low blood glucose, our feeds for we need to either boost blood glucose or we need to stop using it. So when we look at the idea of zone two of that really slow, and mostly comfortable and the idea oh stacy we talk about and we hear all the stuff that's coming out about dementia is then the element of increasing our oxidative or aerobic capacity which means that we want to increase our mitochondrial density mitochondrial respiratory rate the ability to pull in free fatty acids to use that as preferred fuel but when we look at muscle morphology and sex differences, we see that women already have a significant amount of oxidative fibers. We also have greater amount of mitochondria within those fibers. 
we have more mitochondrial density, better respiratory rate, and we have more of the proteins responsible for pulling free fatty acids in to be used. So when we talk about zone two training, I like to say it's to make men more like women. So when we're talking about zone two and all the benefits, women are already there. It's not only from that difference of muscle morphology, then we also have estrogen that comes into play, which does enhance more free fatty acid use and it spares carbohydrates. What women don't have as much is the glycolytic property. We don't have as many glycolytic fibers. We don't produce as much lactate. And that's where women need to be very cognizant and work on that end of things, not only for performance, but also for brain health. Because when we start looking at like differences in brain health and cognition, it has to do with lactate metabolism. If our brain isn't able to um, produce and use lactate that's being produced from and in the blood and pull it over, mm-hmm. then we have a misstep for the neuron to use its optimal fuel. So when we're talking about cognition, reaction, and performance, women need to be more focused on doing some of that topping work for health and performance and not so much of that zone two kind of low, slow, comfortable pacing. Uh, okay, I, I, and I understand all of that, and it you know that makes that makes a great deal of sense to me. But surely there's a limit to the amount of that higher end training that you can do before um, recovery starts to get challenged. And if you're training for something like a marathon or an Ironman, where you need to get the volume in, you also need to be cognizant of how much training you get in at that lower end. So how does uh, how do we how do we deal with that if we've got very specific racing goals? Yes, um, bear mine come from a bear's background, and I still have my soul food of going out for long rides. And I love gravel. I love gravel racing now. And it's really hard to get people to have this mind switch where women by the nature of being women don't have to spend as much time in that volume intensity block. We can look at the way I like to scope it is during the week when we're limited time, this is where we do the quality work where we're looking at doing our resistance training, our tempo work, our high-intensity work. And then every 10 to 14 days, we're doing that super long flow stuff. And for people who are doing Ironman and have to you know, face 8 to 12-plus-hour days doing exercise, it freaks them out. My ultra runners, the same thing. But what I need women to understand is that you have a crossover as well, and it really has to do with time on the feet if you're running a marathon or an ultra. So then we block it together. So we'll have two weekend days where we'll have time on the feet at a very low, low level. So that can be the zone two type training. But unfortunately, so many women don't stay there. Well, a lot of people don't. They think mm-hmm. they're doing zone two and they aren't. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to do the zone two, it has to really be easy. And it's hard for people to understand them. But the biggest thing is we have to take that mind switch. And it's not about 80-20 that we hear 80% long, slow stuff, mm-hmm. 20% capacity work. For women, if we look at it more of a 60-40, where 60% is the capacity work and 40% is the long, slow stuff. Okay. So if I looked at um, a training diary of somebody who's following that, that um, training for an Ironman, for instance, um, a female athlete would have a lower, lower overall volume of training in the plan compared yes. to a male trait of similar ability, let's say, in training for the same event at the same time. They, they would just show what 
seventy percent of the training that their male counterparts do. They would have more of the palliative work than what the male counterpart would have. Okay, now understanding that the female physiology is different, then um, is that re- is that ability to recover from high intensity training different in females than it is in males? We know that women are more fatigue resistant, and so the recovery, yes, we see that they are able to recover um, from the high intensity work. And I often go, okay, well, let's have a thirty six hour recovery, even though you know it looks like it's two days. We have one morning session and one night session. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. have that recovery in between? And they're like, whoa, I feel great. And we often see that women have three really hard high intensity days in a row. And then they're like, oh, I really feel it. I need to take time down. And it's that whole pattern where you're looking at high intensity, high intensity, high intensity, moderate, super easy. And then you can repeat that pattern. And women's bodies tend to fall into that, which is why when you're on a camp, you'll see mixed gendered camps and the women are staying with the men for the first part and then they fall off. And then mm-hmm. towards the end of the week, they're the ones who are out in front and the men are pulling behind. Mm. And it is that difference in recovery and that ability to recover. Mm. And your friend that's staying at the moment, our friend, uh, Kerry McGorley, Kerry and I chatted about this very topic when she, um, some of the research she was doing with the uh, um, Scandinavian cross-country ski teams, I think, the females were working in the same group as the males when they were doing their endurance work but they were working at a higher level uh, of intensity in order to be able to keep up. And she was concerned. And initially, I think she said she was concerned that they were having to work harder, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you looked at the results, actually the females performed better that year. So, um, you know, who, who was, who was getting the best of the deal there? Yeah. It's a little bit intensity, great. And staying out of that moderate. So you have that competitiveness. And when we're looking at the mixed gendered camp, there's an, And I say this as being a female athlete who's been in that situation. Mm -hmm. You start talking with the other female athletes and there's this extra bit of competitiveness where you're like, we have to stay with them and or surpass them. So you push a little bit harder. So when you go look at some of the training data, they're completely out of the zone three. They should be there and they're in the zone four, which is Mm -hmm. so much better. We have a different metabolic cascade that happens and better adaptation. But going back to what you were saying a few minutes ago on that camp, it feels like if, if you've got a set volume for the week, the females need to have a little bit more because the training is slightly higher. They need to have a little bit more recovery interspersed in there instead of doing all the sessions, maybe doing yes. doing three out of every four sessions. Yes, or working technique and mobility. So say you have, everyone has to go to the pool, right? And so you're having a squad-like session, but instead of an hour and a half of intensity for the women, you're, you do more drill work, more mobility work, then get in the pool, do some short, sharp sprints that mm-hmm. aren't cardiovascularly intensive, but more central nervous system oriented, and then call it, where the men might do a full like 90-minute through set. But the women are going to come out better because they're getting that recovery, and they've worked on the technique, and they've still got that <clears> top-end <throat> kind of three-second sprint aspect that's going to feed forward to dropping cortisol, increasing growth hormone and testosterone. Like many things, I mean, you talked about, you know, you and your partner and coming back from the hospital and having different prescriptions or the same prescriptions for drugs and the, obviously the physical differences. Um, if you've got um, a, a husband and wife couple that are training for an Ironman and going out and doing the same training, um, that's then going to present problems with that, isn't it? So um, 
almost need to be running on different programs while preparing for the same event in the same household. And I really question the sanity of women who train with their partners. <laughs> is, that, is that from personal experience? No, my husband's an eco-challenge type, you know, multi-sport, and I've been road cycling or Xterra or, you know, Ironman. So we haven't really done much training together. But for observation purposes, I see a lot of women who train with their partners Mm. who end up being overtrained, under-recovered, under-fueled, mm. and end up at the race completely burnt and wonder why, what's going on, what did I do? And mm -hmm. it's because they were trying to keep up the whole time instead of looking at what they should be doing for their own body. Yeah, and I think we'll come back to this when we talk about nutrition and trying to follow the same nutritional approach within the household. Before that, um, another of your key phrases which seems to strike home very very powerfully is your advice around strength training that females should lift heavy shit we don't we don't have any um we don't have any uh cutouts on this so we'll just say it as you say it um but then i get and i i come from a strength training background and um we used to work with some elite swimmers in leeds uh, olympic swimmers and some of the ladies were doing the same strength work as the, as the guys, you know, and coping very well with it. And the guys used to get a bit upset when the girls were doing more pull-ups than they were. Um, but we used to have to make, I th that, that, and I definitely would have loved to have this research available 20 years ago. But one of the things I did, I did observe then was that um, in terms of when we needed to stop strength training before events, it seemed like the female athletes could keep going a bit longer um, because of the hormonal structure, whereas the guys needed to sort of ease back about 10 or 14 days before an event to make sure they were fully tapered. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, it goes to, to morphology and the fact that women are more endurance. So now when we're looking at the women don't need as much recovery between the sets of ninjas. So when we talk about the typical three to five, where we have three sets, five sets, three to five reps, three to five exercises with three to five minutes recovery in between. And women err on the shorter side of recovery so that they end up getting the same kind of adaptation that the men would. And then when we look overall, yes, women can end up lifting relatively the same amount of weight and technique and everything as men. I kind of think that's for showing that, you know, women and men can do the same kinds of things in the strength world. Mm -hmm. And you can keep I like to have women do one last heavy session at the very beginning of their taper, 10-day taper, mm -hmm. and potentiate the muscle, and then just do some intensity. Where men, I'm like, okay, we're going to stop that three weeks out, mm -hmm. because we don't want that dead in fatigue. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting when we start getting more and more into the strength training. So it, into, you talk about doing sets of five sets, five reps, which is a... a fairly common sort of strength training prescription for those endurance athletes who are perhaps not as familiar with that. Um, for, for those females who are listening and they're a bit nervous about lifting heavy, because probably a lot of the females I know say, well, even at school, we weren't allowed to lift weights. We were told we shouldn't do anything. You don't want to be lifting things above your head, uh, all of that sort of stuff. Um, can you clarify what heavy actually means in, in a context? Relative. Let's start that out where, you know, I don't want anyone to listen to this podcast and go, I'm going to say, say, say I lift heavy, so I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to try a 100 kilo deadlift. 
if not with I want people to understand that when you start resistance training, we're not looking at a training block per se. We're looking at how are we supporting the body to be stress resilient through all the other training, injury prevention, as well as an eye to health. So we want you to be able to move well first. So it could be you're learning how to move first. You're working on mobility. You're working on the depth of your squat. And you're doing all this with resistance bands and body weight before you add load. Mm-hmm. We really want people to know that there is a risk of high injury, or high injury risk with lifting <laughs> if you don't have proper technique and you can't move well. So first and foremost, you need to learn where your sticky points are, work on that mobility, mm-hmm. work on the movement and the technique first before you add load. And then when you add load, it's small incremental to make sure that you still have that good technique. Mm-hmm. So. You know, people are, oh, I know I can deadlift because I'm really strong because I go really well up the hill. So they'll go whack on 60, 70 kilos and end up with back injury because mm-hmm. they don't have the, the right kind of technique. Mm-hmm. So again, it's learning how to move well. And then once you have that down, it becomes that progressive overload. And it works well, even if you are an endurance athlete. I have cyclists who are like, well, why do I have to do resistance training when I can produce high wattage and high power, especially mm-hmm. at the hill? Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's one range of motion. But if you want to be able to produce that high power over the hill when you are under duress and fatigue, you need more of a central nervous system response and you need some heavy load lifting from the gym to be mm-hmm. able to transfer it. Yeah, I love hearing that when you talk about central nervous system response, because most folks never even consider the central nervous system and its role in, you know, maximal strength efforts and repeated maximal strength efforts. Yeah, Um, that's where you see people will go to the gym and they feel like, oh, what's that person sitting on the bench again? They're just hanging out. Actually, no, they're resting in recovery, so then they can go and do another maximal lift. Mm. I want more people to be like that. I want more women to be like that instead of trying to superset. I'm going to do my abs during my rest. No, no. It's about resting from a central nervous system point. Yeah. And that whole thing there about, you know, should I do this as an endurance athlete? If you're a professional athlete, yeah, I know that's probably one of your main priorities in life. If you're a recreational athlete, it's probably not one of your main priorities in life. And for me, you're a human being first before you're an athlete. And if you have good human performance and you're healthy and strong and mobile, then putting good performance on top of that is a lot easier. And you're not always going to be an athlete, right? So if you're a great cyclist now, at your age, at my age, it doesn't mean you're going to be a great cyclist in 10 years' time, but you're still going to be a human being. So I think for me, the message is strength training is important for human function as you get older, particularly, particularly as you're getting older. You know, we need to fight against the aging process and retain the strength that we have on the fast twitch muscle fibers. So um, I really, really like that message that it doesn't matter what sport you're doing. Strength training is valuable. And please don't be concerned about thinking you're going to put a kilo of weight on because actually if you really try to put on good muscle, it's very, very hard and you have to eat an awful lot of food. You know, and it's hard to get people to understand them. And a lot of times, especially in the endurance world, they go to the gym, they try to put on the muscle mass and, they, and they're losing weight. They're like, hey, look at this. I'm losing weight and getting leaner. I was like, that weight is the muscle you're trying to put on. But that's the first thing that goes. And mm-hmm. then we think about how hard it is to put on that lead mouth. 
I'm like, don't do anything to compromise it. Eat, 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 eat your protein, do your resistance training. You'll stay uninjured. You'll stay healthy. Your brain will work better and your performance comes together. Yeah. I, do, are you familiar with Dan Plews? Yeah, Dan and, I were, Dan and I were doing a podcast last week and he tells me now that he's retired from triathlon. He said, I'm lifting weights and I want to get big. But he said, man, it's hard to put on muscle. It is. It is. Absolutely. I um, I laugh because I walk up to the gym and I'm hitting some PRs in my strength training. And I don't usually like to talk about numbers, but I've been really trying to crack the 110 deadlift and I've been trying to crack the 85 um, squat, right? And this week I cracked the 110 and I did 5 by 5 at 80 in my squat. But you look at me and I still look like an endurance runner. So it's all the central nervous system. And no matter how I try to put on lean mass, mm-hmm. it just doesn't come. No. It's like, okay, I can get stronger, but I'm not going to get bulky. Um, menopausal females and postmenopausal, still the same strength advice for them? Or do they need to make mm-hmm. it even more a priority in their life? And the big rock of perimenopause and postmenopause, that is it. Strength training beyond all things. So we look at strength training and we see all the benefits that's coming out. So we see that it helps with cardiovascular function. The increased neural pathways helps with cognitive decline. It enhances your proprioception. So when you're 80 walking down the street, if you slip on the curb, you're not going to fall and break your hip. We see it's really important for maintaining body composition. And then when we are looking at the fact that our hormones are flatlining, we need that external stress, the resistance training to take mm-hmm. the place of what the hormones used to do for us. Mm-hmm. So it's like the better for our might. If you are in your early 40s and you haven't started resistance training, start. And it can start easy, but when you start getting into your mid to late 40s, it's so important, especially if you're doing endurance sport and wanting to perform well. You'll see that your training isn't working for you. And you're wondering why you're getting slower and why you're losing power, why you're putting on belly. Mm. And it's because the hormones are going, hey, wait, yeah, we need to conserve and we're going to chew through your lean. Uh, have you found that if females are sort of preparing for menopause by adding strength training, that can mitigate some of the um, the effects that, that are well publicized uh, around the menopause? Absolutely. We see the research coming out and it's the five years before that one point in time called menopause where we see the biggest body composition change. Mm. And if we increase our protein and we add resistance training, it really does help attenuate that body fat gain, especially that visceral fat in conjunction with being cognate of how we are taking care of our gut microbiome. Ah. So we need yeah, we need to have that deep gut food to keep diversity mm. because when we start losing that diversity, we see, especially in the late perimenopause, a decrease in the diversity and an increase in the overgrowth <clears throat> of the obesogenic bacteria. But if we are really looking and taking care of our gut microbiome, we keep that diversity and we keep the signaling for lean we we could dive into a whole new another podcast on microbiome, couldn't we? And that's you know, oh, there's yeah. um there's a big project in the UK at the moment called the Zoe Project, which is going really big on the microbiome, and uh, yeah. they're, they're putting out some great podcasts um, about that particular subject, and it is fascinating. Yes, new has a lot of cool stuff coming around.
I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. Just before we move on to nutrition then, um, in, in I think both of your books, you talk about plyometrics. Now, again, I know a lot of endurance athletes feel that plyometrics, um, ironically, because running is a plyometric exercise, but uh, feel that plyometrics is um, something that's going to be damaging to their health. And maybe, maybe it's just because people tend to go in at 100 miles an hour and not do all the technical learning that you just mentioned for strength training. Um, where do plyometrics fit in? It, 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 in your mind and how much of those do we need to be doing um and do we need to be doing them if we're not an athlete if you are an athlete yes you could include them so biometrics is like the moment of that intensity and it's the rebound and the power development and we get older both as men and women we lose power so we want to keep that normal aspect of kind of quick and faster nerve conduction to maintain power um, they don't have to be scary. We're not talking about massively huge tall box jumps. We can talk about, um, you know, depth jumps or, or where you're stepping off and landing. Mm-hmm. Um, med ball throws, med ball slams, battle ropes, all of these things that are really fast, explosive movements that don't cause injury. And if you have bad knees or hips, it's not going to attack that. But it's all about the fast explosiveness and being able to absorb that force. We're talking about not only the power development, but we see that when you're doing that biometric work, it increases the body's ability to use glucose to maintain glucose homeostasis and to have an increase in what we call the exercise between skeletal muscle and exercise. So we get more of that talk to say, hey, we don't need a material. Biometric super important. I often have people like do low box jumps, very explosive low box jumps mm-hmm. as a warm up to a heavy lifting session. Mm-hmm. It primes the muscle. You get your plyometrics out of the way, and then you're warmed up from a central nervous system point of view to then be able to go in and lift. Well, and of course that that actually is a fairly reasonable protocol for strength training and and sports specific training, isn't it? And that's one of the things we used to do with the swimmers was to have them actually to do it the other way around. We used to get them to do some heavy squats and then move it into some um, box jumps and then into a very dynamic start where they were timed over 10 meters. So you got that kinetic chain of work. Yeah. I think now they they term it French contrast training, which is really interesting. Yeah. And one of our listeners um, wrote in saying that as a, she, you know, she competes as well in various endurance events, but she's also a personal trainer. And having read your book, she she, she felt that of all the prescriptions that you were offering up, there it, it could feel quite overwhelming. And whether it's possible to combine high intensity training and plyometrics and some of that other work into one session. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you're very um, conscious of what you're doing. Again, we're dropping the volume or maintaining quality. When I look at someone who's going, how do I fit in two sprint intervals and one hit session and three um, heavy lifting sessions and some plyo? It's like, okay, let's take a step. 
We know that the heavy lifting is a priority. And like I said, we can either warm up or cool down with some plyo work um, in the session. So then you're getting two done at once. But the plyo can also count as a high intensity sprint interval, depending mm -hmm. on what kind of work you're doing. So then that's taking care of two of the big things that you need to worry about. I try to get people to have the hit session separate where we're doing longer, about 80, 80% or higher instead of that 95 to 110% that a sprint is mm -hmm. so that they can really focus on the quality. When we're talking about the sprint interval. You can do a heavy posterior chain and then you can go do a couple of sprint intervals on the treadmill or on the bike, something like that, done and dusted in an hour. So mm -hmm. yes, you can combine them. But you also want to see what order, like what is the person's goal? Is the person's goal to get super lean or is it to bulk up? Is it to get strong? Is it not? The, then it becomes the timing of where do you put that sprint? Where do you put the plyo? Mm. Um, yeah, it was one of the things I was conscious of when I was working with team sports athletes is plyometrics can be quite technical. And if you get them wrong because you're fatigued, then that can lead to injury. So we used to try and get the technical stuff and the skill-based stuff in at the beginning and then yep. the endurance stuff at the end so that there was less of an injury risk. Is that is that something you advocate? Yes, absolutely. Because if you see people who are trying to do something that's very technical towards the end of a season, they're tired, they don't execute it right, and then the motor pattern learns the tired me, and that's not what you want. No, absolutely. Okay, let's let's move on to nutrition, Stacey. Um, we talked about households, males and females, doing the same training. And I know that there's also a conflict sometimes and certainly a, a difference in response when those two people are also trying to follow the same diet. I had an example recently. I think you probably talked about this in quite some depth of um, – a female saying she was following a low carb, high fat diet because her husband was doing it and he was losing loads of weight and it wasn't happening for her. What's wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with her. It's the diet that is not appropriate for her physiology. We mm. see it all the time. Women need carbohydrate. We need more carbs than men. We don't get by with low carbohydrate. We have areas in our brain, specifically the hypothalamus, that is very sensitive to nutrient density. So because we are the reproductive of the species, we have uh, more of a draw on the endocrine system. So we have two areas in the hypothalamus that have what we call kisspeptin now. So when we have low carbohydrate intake and overall low energy availability, mm. the area of kisspeptins that's responsible for our endocrine system gets downregulated. And we see it as a severe conservation effect where we stop menstruating or we get period irregularity. Mm -hmm. We put on belly fat, we lose lean. And the other thing that we find with low carbohydrate availability in women is it presents like relative energy deficiency in sport. Mm -hmm. So we get the same um, endocrine dysfunction. We lose lean mass. The first thing that goes when the body is under stress, especially metabolic stress, is lean mass because it's metabolically active. The body's like, I'm going to use this for building blocks for other things. So when women are like, I'm following a low-carb, high-fat diet, what's going on? Like, that is not how your body fuels itself. That's not how the brain wants you to fuel yourself. We need carbs and we need protein. What happens if I have to speak to a female who said, well, I'm following a keto diet 
and I feel like I'm doing really well on it. I mean, is that is that one of these individual differences that crop up sometime, or or is that person just heading for a fall further down the road? I would say the bell curve of outliers, but when we're looking at all the data, I'd really like to get Dexas on her and show yeah. her what's happening with the keto diet because the weight's going on the scale. She might feel like she has really good cognitive focus, but all of this is the factor of lean mass loss and the body under stress and trying to really function under that stress. And we also have to, again, go back to the gut microbiome for people who are doing keto or high fat. They're reducing that diversity. And mm-hmm. for, hormonal, for hormonal health, it's really, really important to keep that diversity because for women and to some extent men, the second bypass of our hormones is that it goes to the liver. It's metabolized, picked up by sex hormone binding globulin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is then excreted into the intestines through bile. And the little gut bug, unconjugated or detached from the sex hormone binding globulin and send it back out in circulation. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a keto or high fat diet, you lose those bugs. So you lose hormonal function and health. Yeah. One of the great pieces of advice that I heard from Tim Spector was when you, when you think about microbiome health, apart from reducing ultra processed foods and refined sugars, you should be adding more all the time, increasing the diversity, the range of different foods and colors that you're taking in because those gut bacteria, the good ones, just flourish off that. And that's what we need to yeah. keep healthy is the good bacteria. Yes, exactly, exactly. And the caveat there is not as an endurance athlete, not filling up too much on just fruit and veg because you end up in low energy availability. Mm. Definitely make that the basis of your plate, but don't neglect the high density, good grains and protein. And then the 20% of life, which is all the fun stuff like wine and whiskey and dark chocolate. You mentioned protein earlier. I feel like the majority of folks uh, are probably not getting enough good quality protein. And then when I do hear people talking about how they get it, it's all coming through sports supplements and drinks, which are very expensive. And to my mind, if you're paying attention to what you eat and, you know, engaged in your food, it's unnecessary as well. Um, but you, you, I know you highlight protein as being a key factor for females and dealing with the menopause. Can you just expand on that a little bit, please, on the the, the importance of protein and the sources of protein and particularly if you're going down the vegan or vegetarian route, where I know it becomes more challenging. As we age, both men and women, we become more anabolically resistant to both exercise and protein intake. We see that we don't age in the same linear fashion. So women, when they hit perimenopause, it's like a discernible point of aging because we're having this hormone flux. The body's under a lot of stress. We're becoming more insulin resistant and more anabolically challenge. So protein is really, really important. So when we're looking at protein, we see some of the research is coming out that pre-menopausal women, the tipping point is around 30 grams of high quality protein or around three grams of leucine and then high quality protein post-exercise. For peri and post-menopausal women, it's 40. And when we start looking at men, it's 40 times a little bit higher when we start getting into our you know, late 70s. It's more of that aging factor. Women are like, well, how much protein in a day do I need? And the guidelines that we know for women have been reset recently. For premenopausal women, it's 1.6 
grams per kilo. Oh, wow. Okay. And for peri and postmenopausal women, we're looking around that 2 to 2.3 grams per kilo. And that, you know, people get overwhelmed with them. So how do we curse it up, right? So we say palm size or a little bit bigger than palm size, portion at each meal, half a palm or three quarters of a palm for every snack. That's your baseline. And we're talking about quality of protein. There's so many different types. And we can, can use protein powders, but not the main source. It's a supplement. So if you are coming from swim squat or coming from the gym, you have to mm. go right to work and you're stuck in commuter traffic for 45 minutes, kind of place for it because then you can have your real meal after. But if you're someone who's like, I never have an appetite, I'm just going to have protein bars, I'm going to have protein powder then you're really compromising gut microbiome and you're often compromising nature's ability to help with all the things that are in the natural food that you're eating because we're not as smart as nature. So try to get as much real food as possible and supplement when you need to. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I saw some research because uh, I know a lot of folks are quite overwhelmed by taking that much protein, uh, two grams per kilo body weight and feeling like, oh, well, that might be bad for my kidneys and liver. But I think they did some research on some strength training athletes, bodybuilders, where they um, encouraged them to eat four grams per kilo body weight for a whole year. And when they were looking at the markers for the liver and kidneys, they found no no negative impacts on that at all over a 12 month period. Now, that, that's an awful lot of protein to be consuming each day. And most people are never going to get anywhere near that, are they? No, they're not. And then um, there's a group out of Florida that looked at three to three and a half grams per kilo in both men and women. And they did DEXAs and kidney function and bone health. And there was no adverse effect at that level either. So mm -hmm. when we're talking about the upper echelon. If you have a family history of kidney disease or you have a known condition of kidney disease, then yeah, you're going to have to watch what protein you eat. But for the general healthy person, that higher protein intake is super important. And I, I'm, I'm notorious for um, quoting the study that a friend posted who is a research scientist in Florida as well, where there were 12, um, well, it was over 12 weeks and there were 30 normal weight obese women and they were sedentary and they were all eating around 0.6 grams per kilo. So wow. then they took, yeah, they took half of them and put them on 1.6. And then they left the other half as doing their 0.6. No other intervention. They kept on their normal life. Um, they were isocaloric, so they matched the calories in the meals. So they're very conscious of the dietary control. At the end of 12 weeks, the people with the higher protein content completely recomped their body. So they increased lean mass. They were no longer normal weight obese. They were just normal weight. And then the people with the lower protein, they didn't have any kind of change. Wow. So it's just shows you the power of protein with station when we're in a low calorie state of high training block, getting that protein in to preserve the lean mass so that your body doesn't go into a low energy state and start chewing through the lean mass. Mm. I listened to a presentation um, about high intensity training recently from a female researcher in America. And she was talking about um, the, the value of a protein, a small amount of protein before doing high intensity training sessions. Um, I think it was about 20 grams. So just a small, mm -hmm. just a small serving, but um, what, 
positive impacts that would have on the performance, not carbohydrates, as most people think, but take having a more of a protein supplement um, and more so for females that were going to engage in high intensity training. Yes, women tend to go through more lysine than men do, and we have more reliance on amino acids during exercise, especially high intensity. But having that before, I think it might have been Abby Smith Ryan who was talking about it because she's the one who's done all the work in there. Mm-hmm. And we see that before strength training, heavy resistance training, and hit exercise, having that 15 to 20 gram really does help with the session and also post-exercise recovery and metabolic control post-exercise. So, yeah, good. What, one more thing before we move off nutrition. Um, intermittent fasting is very, very popular at the moment. Um, bearing in mind what you've said about you know carbohydrates and males and females, is there a place for intermittent fasting um, no. for our female athletes? No. Well, so if we're looking at intermittent fasting and we're looking at what intermittent fasting is with the, uh, you know, the 16-hour fasting window or alternate day fasting, this doesn't do anything for either men or women. We're seeing more and more public health research coming out that's showing that people who delay breaking their fast till noon or after end up with more of those obesogenic qualities and cardiovascular risk factors and metabolic dysfunction than people who are actually breaking their fast at eight o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So, and then not eating after like 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. And this works with chronobiology. When we see when does the body need fuel, it needs it during the day to be stress resilient, to fuel for what we're doing, regardless if you're training. And when we're looking at time-restricted eating, which is Mm -hmm. people lump it all together, at 12 and 12, where you stop eating after dinner, and then you have breakfast, or you have snack before you go training, that's fine. That has a minimal impact, but better on body composition and overall health, because it helps with sleep hygiene, it helps with all the reparation that's happening, while you're sleeping, it's we've gotten into this situation of society where there are no set meal times. People mm-hmm. are eating after dinner. They're eating at 11 o'clock at night. They're eating in their car while they're driving somewhere. Like there's this disconnect. And we need to reconnect it. We need to like fuel for what you were doing and mm-hmm. then let your body sleep well. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I uh, Sashin Panda did a good book about the circadian cycle, I think it was, and talked about time-restricted eating, not intermittent fasting. And um, again, the Zoe Project, we're talking recently about letting your microbiome um, relax. So, you know, you have your evening meal at 6 p.m. and then don't have anything else. Um, I mean, and there's a lot of health benefits to that as well, isn't there? If you're going to have a glass of wine with your dinner, have it at six, but don't have it before you go to sleep because we know how that impacts the sleep cycle. Um, and then if you're eating at eight o'clock in the morning, well, 6 p.m. to eight is 14 hours. That's a pretty decent fast without going to extremes. Exactly. exactly. And it's the key end of not eating after dinner because a lot of women who are, I oh, want to try intermittent fasting, if we start implementing that good sleep hygiene, and reducing food intake two hours before they go to mm-hmm. bed, all of a sudden they're doing a 12-hour fast <clears throat> and things change for the better. Um, Stacey, let's move. I'm conscious of the time now. Let's let's move on to menopause because I know that's a, a big part of both of your books. Um, mm-hmm. The questions I get asked are um, guidance on weight control, dealing with fatigue. We, I think we've talked about adding lean muscle mass. 
weight gain and weight loss. Um, I think probably the, the protein conversation we had a few minutes ago adds to that. Um, are there are there actions that females can take to avoid weight gain during menopause, or are there just some things that are just inevitable, and you know it's going to take too much energy to fight against it? We don't weight anyway. Um, it's just one of the natural factors of aging, both men and women. If we are looking specifically at menopause weight gain, if we take action in perimenopause, then we can definitely attenuate that. So if we are looking, as I was saying earlier, we see the biggest body composition changes happening in the five years leading up to that one point in menopause. We don't know when we're going to hit menopause because there isn't some calendar that magically says, hey, you know what? On January 19th, you're going to hit menopause. We have to really take the eye of, okay, in my early 40s, I have got to be doing resistance training and have high intensity work because I want to have that as the bedrock for as I'm getting into perimenopause. And you'll start noticing that you're having irregularities in your bleed pattern. You're not sleeping as well. You're having fatigue. We know those are perimenopausal symptoms and we can do something. We look at different adaptogens. We look at sleep hygiene and all of these things are going to feed forward to better body composition. We can get into the sticky conversation of menopause hormone therapy. That can be a completely different podcast, but I will talk a little bit about it because it is such a, a vocalized question across the world, right? There are groups that are saying that every woman should be on menopause hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. I find that a huge disservice because that's like telling every woman needs to be on an oral contraceptive pill. Right? It just doesn't make because the synthetic hormones are not the same as your natural hormones, nor are they supposed to be. You know, it's supposed to have the same level. We also are seeing women think that more estrogen is better, so they start getting higher and higher doses, but then they have an increase in belly fat and deterioral, where they go down this rabbit hole. I get two to three emails a day from women saying, I don't know what's going on. I'm doing all the things. I'm doing the lifting. I'm doing the sprint. I'm doing more recovery. I've done the sleep hygiene. I'm eating more fruit and veg. I've started menopause hormone therapy and I'm eating 1500 calories a day. And those two at the end, I was like, there's a sticky point. One, you're not eating enough. And two, what's the dose? We need to really have that conversation of what is your hormone history? Have you always been an endurance or have you always been an athlete that's been on the lower end of estrogen? Well, then maybe we want to start at a lower dose instead of the be all end all where everyone's like, here, start with 50, work your way up to 100. That's just a blanket. It goes back to the ambient situation, right? So you have to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. It is a tool in the toolbox to help get through. And some women need it, some people don't. We see um, a couple of influencers are throwing up why every woman should be on it, helps with brain health. No, it increases the volume of brain tissue, but it doesn't increase the capacity of neural growth neural pathways, reduction of plaque that are part of Alzheimer's, this is where we need to do more of that lactate work. So just be very cognizant that there's so much information being thrown at menopausal women. The first and foremost is take a step back and say, okay, what do I need to do? Because I can see what my mother went through. I could see what my sister's gone through. I see my training's not working for me. So the first and foremost is change up the training. Do the resistance training, the sprint interval training, and get that protein in, get that gut microbiome working for you, 
And that's the, the base of it. And then we can look individual and make tweaks there so that you can get leaner, get fitter, get faster as you are going through the transition to the other side. Is it, is it possible that we can have a female that's doing everything right and still struggling with menopause? Oh, absolutely. See it all the time. Okay. And, and, what, is, what do, and what do they do then? So this is where we find a menopause specialist. And this is one of the problems because GPs are not trained in it unless they mm. specifically go look for it. So I really try to get people to see a fertility expert or an endocrinologist, not a GP who specializes in menopause because they're just hearing some of the chatter around how every woman should be on menopause hormone therapy. They don't know the ins and outs of it. But if you work with an endocrinologist, they understand what red S is. They understand that you're an active woman. They understand that your metabolism of hormones is going to be different than a sedentary obese woman who's struggling. Mm -hmm. This is where it becomes individualized. Um, we don't talk like menopause has been taboo for so long. And just now starting the conversation, again, there's lots of misinformation and it's been depersonalized for a lot of people. We need mm -hmm. to bring it back to the individual. Adaptogens work, which ones, how much? We have to kind of biohack. And it's the same with, do I use an SSRI or do I use estrogen and progesterone? Those are all individualized. You have to figure that out for yourself. I wish there was a big pill, typically, to give everyone, but I'm like, even if you use menopause hormone therapy, you still have to put in the work to get better body composition and all of those things because mm. it's just a tool. It's not the fix. Okay. Now, I'm a male. I'm yeah. a coach. I have female yeah. athletes. Um, I've got a partner who is uh, training for endurance race. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of male listeners who are in exactly the same position. Uh, one of the things that I really want to just explore for a few minutes is how do we communicate with our females how do we firstly how do we open that conversation because as you say it's it's often not talked about you know females are a little reluctant to talk about it particularly males male coaches are not sure how to how to mention this without feeling embarrassed um, and once we've opened the conversation what, what do we do is it is it better just to ask questions and then sort of work from there so we want to have more men involved in the conversation because if we keep it as women, keeping it to ourselves, talking about it just amongst ourselves, we're not going to get anywhere. We need to have men in the conversation and we need to embrace men who want to be part of the conversation. We talk to dads, we talk to coaches, we talk to partners, and we normalize it within our own environment. So as a male coach who's uncomfortable talking about it, if you're working with your athletes, you always have help. What are you doing? What was your sleep? What's your HRV? Well, um, you know, are you feeling today? What's your readiness for? Where are you in your menstrual cycle? Are you having hot flashes? It just becomes one of those typical health questions as a check-in. And that normalizes the conversation. And if someone's like, well, you just asked me about my menstrual cycle, then they're, they might be a little bit standoffish at first, but then they get used to the fact that it's a health question. It's not, uh, you know, a digging in to see, whether you are, why aren't you performing well or you're performing really well, it's a typical health question mm. because we see that the menstrual cycle is a really good indicator of endocrine health. And if you're adapting to training and if you're in your late 30s, early 40s, and we start to see irregularity, maybe it's red S or maybe it's perimenopause. If it is, 
perimenopause, then we do have to change up training. So it becomes the coach's tool. And it's just, you know, bring it back down to health and performance. Mm -hmm. So just open up the conversation as a health starter. And people usually will come on board because now your coach is really vested into your health and well-being, not just the performance and the training stress. Yeah, and I think we've covered enough earlier on in the in the conversation about you know the the differences in intensity for for either sex um, and the quantity and the recovery periods in that. But at, at the bottom of all of this, supporting it is the fact that everyone's an individual, so they respond differently. So as a coach, you have to ask the questions: How are you getting on? How are you finding this? Do you need more recovery? And I think that comes down to the monthly cycle as well, isn't it? Doesn't it? Because there are definitely some females who who feel that difference and how it affects their performance. But I've also worked with female athletes for whom they say, well, actually I don't, it doesn't really affect me and I can just carry on. And so again, that's, that's very much individual. Yeah, absolutely. When we look at the typical uh, training metric of variability, there is a discernible difference in that where we see high hormone phase with decrease in rate variability. That doesn't mean the woman isn't recovered. It just means that there's a change in autonomic when we're looking at women who are perimenopause, they see a decrease in the heart rate variability, but it doesn't have a rebound to come back up. So it's not a very useful metric without having the other conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's not understanding where they are and how they're feeling because that heart rate variability, the algorithms for it are not appropriate for female physiology yet. I have spoken to a lot of people who've done research, uh, you know, Dan Plews and Paul Larson and, um, and others. And nearly always it comes back to heart rate variability is great. But actually, if you just ask the question, how how enthusiastic are you about training? How well did you sleep last night? That probably, that those subjective feelings probably more uh, more informative than the numbers that you're seeing on the screen. Yes. And this is why when you're working with athletes and they're so afraid that they're going to hit some kind of negative metric on performance today, like now let's work on mental skills. You own this. You've got this. Get the negative self-talk out. Because you can look at any kind of metric, but on race day, you've been tapering and working for this, and you can own it, and it doesn't matter. You can have your best performance, even if your metrics say that you're not going to. Mm. Stacey, just before we finish, um, there's a little bit in your book about the cold and dealing with the cold. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was asked a particular question about... um, one of our female listeners who's just started with cold water immersion and uh, yes. she wanted your idea, uh, thoughts and um, on, on appropriateness, um, how females respond differently to men, whether the prescription for how long you spend in cold water and how often you need to do it is, is different or advisable. Um, yes. We're looking at temperature gradient. Women don't need to be in zero to four degree water. It's too cold. Women do well in around 16 degrees because it's going to invoke it's going to invoke the shiver response. It's going to invoke that vagal response, which is what your body's trying to learn to get over. And you're going to get some of the um, health benefits from it as well. Did Did you say 16 degrees there? 16. That's yes. centi- that's centigrade, right? Yes. yes. Okay, so that's actually. I mean, that's that's what I would say is cool, not cold, not ice bath. Right. So men, because women's temperature fluctuates across the monthly cycle, we have better thermoregulatory properties. We also have a better shiver response. And our skin is much more sensitive to the cold, 
which is, you know, why women end up with Raynaud's more, you know, it's a sex mm-hmm. difference in these, right? So we don't need that extreme cold. If we are looking at performance and health benefits, I try to get women to go into the heat, into the sauna, mm-hmm. because we see a better response with heat shock proteins, vasodilation constriction responses, especially as we get older. I do have women who are triathletes or open water swimmers do cold water face immersion to get over that vagal response that you will get if you get into cold water for a swim. But I really try to get women not to do the Wim Hof ice bath immersion kind of stuff, but -hmm. try to get them to get more into the heat. For health and performance, women tend to do better in the heat. Yeah, and that what you were talking about there about um, cold water swimming or, you know, specific events that that's almost like the specificity of training isn't it and it's a a very particular adaptation so that when you get into the water you're not going to suddenly get that recoil and panic and uh, and all those other things that's not becoming cold water adapted which i think is where most people are going on this path yeah because the the problem if you're not adapted to the cold water and you get what we call the vagal response you cannot get your rid of your body gets into that parasympathetic, I'm really lazy and tired, and that people trace it. So we really look at water temperature, we look at environment, even if it's going to be a relatively cool but not freezing cold swim, but the air temperature is going to be freezing, we still do some cold water swim so that we don't get that big old Stacy, it's been a fantastic education for me this morning. Thank you so much. Can, do you mind if I just summarize and see if I've picked up some of the key messages uh, of what you said? Um so females, even if you're training for endurance events, you definitely don't need to do quite as much of the lower intensity work. You definitely need to do more high intensity work. And overall, that probably means that the volume of your training is going to be less than you might be thinking and certainly less than your male counterparts who are training for the same event. Um, when you're doing your training, you, there needs to be a greater emphasis on strength work. But before you go down the lift heavy shit, you need to make sure you can have the movement skills to be able to accommodate that so you don't get injured. And so we're not, we're not sort of counterproductive. And that is very useful for endurance athletes as well because of all of the health benefits as well as the central nervous system benefits. In terms of supporting this with your nutrition, females definitely need to focus on getting good quality carbs. Mm-hmm you need to really emphasize the quantity of protein and um, pay attention to the new guidelines. And it's probably a lot more than you currently are comfortable with. And you think, but actually the benefits are are astounding based on some of the research that you mentioned. Um, Intermittent fasting isn't really any good for anybody, but definitely not females, but time restricted eating, sort of finishing your dinner at six and then not having breakfast to eight is perfectly fine, but please don't push it out any further than that. Uh, in terms of the menopause, right, so no fasted training. Okay, got that one. In terms of the menopause, actually, as you say, there's no calendar date that says this is when it's going to start. It's different for every female. So what you need to do at some point in the late 30s or early 40s to make sure you've got this covered is to get busy with the strength training early in preparation for mm-hmm. um, for if and when it comes um, and the eating the protein. So all the things we've talked about are sort of, you know, you 
a bit like a bit like a, a monetary pension. You don't want to start paying into your pension when you're just about to hit old age. You want to start paying into it early so you're ready. And try and avoid the conversations about HRT, hormone replacement therapy. It's probably not the right thing. But if you're doing everything that we've talked about today and you're still struggling with menopause, then seek out the help from an endocrinologist or a fertility expert so you can get some specific guidance for you. But definitely don't be following those influence on social media who are telling you this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And in terms of cold water exposure, you definitely cool water, not the ice baths. Don't follow Wim Hof as popular as it might be, find your own path. But if you've got a specific event that's going to call for you to be in cold water, then yes, some very localized training just to get used to that might be useful. But you don't need to be having a, an ice bath every morning. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I like I like to think that I'm I like to think that I'm open minded and up to date on the current yeah, research. Uh, but it's, you it's, it's always good to have a refresher. Stacey Sims, uh, thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to point people to your two books, Raw and Next Level, if they haven't read them. There's a revised edition of uh, Raw that's just come out as well. So there's some updates in that. Um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Stacey. And I look forward to uh, touching base with you again in the future. Maybe, yeah, when, your next, maybe when your next book's out. <laughs> Thank you again to Stacey for being my guest on the show this week. I have to say that she definitely clarified a lot of topics for me, and I hope that you're able to get at least one nugget you can use. Personally, it was definitely worth the wait to get Stacey onto the show, so I hope hope you enjoyed it too. So make sure you don't miss any future episodes, including my new Bite Size podcast episodes, which are released every Saturday. Please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and click the subscribe button. And if you've got a couple of more minutes, maybe you could share this episode with one person you think could benefit and maybe leave me a review on your chosen platform once you finish listening. If you can do either of those, that would be awesome. That's all for this week. I'll have another great guest in seven days time and I hope that you'll be able to join me. And in the meantime, please remember to check out the show notes for all of the links I mentioned today.